Welcome to The Real Photo Show. So this is part one of two of conversations I had with presenters from the Catchlight Visual Storytelling Summit, and that happened on April 19th and 20th, although this recording was before the summit, and part two, my recording is after the summit. Uh, Not that that really matters, because these are more sort of behind-the-scenes, background conversations with the guest speakers. Uh, So in part one, I speak with Mabel Jimenez and Josue Rivas uh, about their then upcoming presentation, which was titled Photojournalism's Ethical Question, Who Gets to Tell a Community's Story? The panel also included Felix Uribe and Jessica Prado, but I was just speaking with Mabel and Josue. So this is a little different in that uh, the conversations were based upon these panel presentations, and we don't get as deep into who the guests are like we normally do. So I'm just going to give you a little bit more background information up front here. Uh, Mabel Jimenez is an independent photographer and reporter based in San Francisco. Being raised in Tijuana, 15 minutes from the Mexico-U.S. border, themes of biculturalism and immigration have influenced her photographic and journalistic work. She has documented San Francisco's Latino community since 2008 and is the former photo editor for El Tecolote Bilingual Newspaper, where she continues as a regular contributor. During her seven-year tenure in the position, she created, produced, and curated a yearly group photography exhibition showcasing the newspaper's best photojournalism. Also, Mabel is now currently the California Visual Desk Editor uh, for Catchlight's new California Desk, and if you listen to... The earlier episode with Elodie Malier-Storm, we talk about that brand new California desk. Uh, So, uh, Jose Rivas is a creative director, visual storyteller, and educator working at the intersection of art, journalism, and social justice. His work aims to challenge the mainstream narrative about indigenous peoples, build awareness about issues affecting native communities across Turtle Island, and be a visual messenger for those in the shadows of our society. He is a 2017 Magnum Foundation Photography and Social Justice Fellow, founder of the Standing Strong Project, and co-founder of Natives Photograph, and winner of the 2018 Photo Evidence Book Award with World Press Photo for his book, Standing Strong. All right, so before we get started, The Real Photo Show is sponsored by the Charcoal Book Club, a monthly photo subscription book service where you can also shop for those books online. All right, so enjoy this part one. Uh, Also, the panel discussions will be available at catchlight.io, probably as soon as they're done editing them. (laughs) All right, thank you for listening. Enjoy the show, and we will talk soon. Josue, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you for inviting us. Yeah, thank you for having us. Yeah, so you are both part of a Catchlight uh, Summit, um, and I should have the whole name of that in front of me. (laughs) One second. (laughs) Catchlight Visual Storytelling Summit, right? There you go. Thank you. you. (laughs) (laughs) And you will both be on the same. Are you calling them panels, discussions, talks? Yeah, it's a it's a panel. You're you're going to be, you know, talking about the idea of representation in telling the story, right? Who gets to tell the story? 
how the story should be told. And there's just this whole idea of there are storytellers that are available to, to organizations that aren't always thought of when uh, stories break, when stories need to be told. And there are people who are involved and there are people who are connected. And oftentimes editors will go to the people they know and, and they'll sort of jump in and they might not have any connection to the community, any connection to the, the actual history of the place. Is, is that kind of the idea of what you'll be speaking about? Either one of you could go. <laughs> sure. Um, I mean, what you describe, Michael, it's not like a might situation. It's kind of like the status quo. Mm-hmm. And it, it, I think there's more of a, of a desire to move to a type of visual journalism or visual storytelling where the people that are covering stories have an insider's knowledge and an understanding uh, of the communities that they're covering. Um, I mean, we're all kind of outsiders to each other to an extent, but to to have people that can actually navigate different communities is produces better stories, more accurate stories, more nuanced stories. And so I think that the the other panelists that people will see um, in the summit, uh, other Catch Life fellows, Felix Uribe and Jessica Prado and Josue, of course, uh, are like really, I think, amazing examples of the work that can that can result when people are documenting their own communities. Yeah, and, and to and to add to that too, it's like when we're thinking of of paradigm shifts, right? I think that humanity is going through a paradigm shift where a lot of realizations are happening. I think that that comes down to, you know, how are we using these opportunities to to move forward and to ambition something different, especially when it comes to the stories that we're telling, especially when it comes to who's telling the story of, of communities, especially when those communities have been extracted from um, automatically since the beginning of photography. I mean, when you start thinking about like, the work of different photographers that have like parachuted into a place, gotten and taken and extracted those images and, and those, you know, the stories of those communities that are so-called like impoverished or marginalized, then they go and get a big award or they get, you know, they get, you know, rewarded for, <laughs> for going out there. Right. Um, and we just kind of like made that the standard you know, made that like, this is the standard of photojournalism or visual storytelling or even commercial photography. Like you start thinking about how we just normalized it. And I think what a lot of folks are understanding, not just in the United States, but throughout the world is that image making in the process of image making has not been given the opportunity to come from the inside out, you know, that is always been from the outside in. So I think that that's kind of Another big point is that it's it's a much larger shift of, of a paradigm than just vicious storytelling that we're part of ambitioning the future of humanity. And this happens to be that vicious storytelling is one of those things that we have to think about. Yeah. Uh, in fact, the in the description of the talk you're going to have, it, it's mentioned that uh, the idea is how do you work uh, ethically and collaboratively within communities? And this idea of the journalist parachuting in, as you said, Josue, um, spending a limited amount of time taking those photos, coming out with those photos and being rewarded for it really belies that whole idea of collaboration, that whole idea of uh, knowing uh, that community. But 
I guess the then the question is, what does it mean? What does that mean to work ethically and collaboratively within a community? I think that there's been a big emphasis uh, in throughout the history of journalism for for journalists to remove themselves or to separate themselves from the events or the people that they're documenting uh, and that you're not supposed to get close and that that's the way to assure bias and neutrality. And that's like what's still being taught at journalism schools today. And it's important that people understand that, you know, there's conflict of interest to avoid, but when this sort of rule of neutrality and separation is applied equally in all situations, um, it doesn't always work to the benefit of the story. And to, to drill this idea that you're not supposed to be involved, that you're not supposed to care, I don't think it's very beneficial <laughs> in the end. Um, and I think in many situations, it only ends up this objectivity. And I, and I say it in quotation marks because I don't think any of us are truly objective. I think we all have opinions and feelings about everything, about what we're going to have for dinner, about what the president just said. You know, like we don't feel nothing about the situations that we're on and the things that we're documenting. So I think that we need to move to a space where instead of saying we don't have biases, we're all neutral. We need to admit what our biases are and what our concerns are and where we're coming from and why we're documenting the things that we are. And I think that there's been this big idea, especially of, of photojournalism, you know, especially in like the 70s, 80s era of you know, that, that people go get into this because they want to go to exotic places and document different cultures that you have no idea about. And it's this like romanticized, you know, you get to travel and, you know, and, and, and it's really like a colonizer uh, way of, of thinking it. Like, I'm going to go to this place like I have more knowledge than <laughs> to document those and the people who are from there. That, um, um, exoticism, romanticism was went hand in hand with colonial photography. And, you know, the, the photographers of the colonial era kind of led their so-called expeditions that resulted in conquest, right? Right. And, you know, a lot of people are familiar with the concept of a male gaze where there's there's also a white gaze and who's telling the story is going to is going to inform how that story is told. And when we talk about representation in all kinds of media, you know, it's not just representation of who you're putting in front of the lens, but who you're putting behind that lens, too. If there's not if there's representation on only one of the sides of the lens, then it's not it's not real. It's not real representation. Yeah. And then, and then I think just to uh, like add to that, like these ideas are not new ideas. And I think that it just happens that right now we're more open to talking about this. Like I'm sure you, Mabel, and, and your peers and people that are working with community locally are being saying this for like decades. You know what I'm saying? And it just happens to be that right now it's, you know, people are guilty enough that they are like listening about it and, and and it's not even like they want to i mean i i can just tell from my experience like when i first came into this whole world of foundations and you know scholarships and, and fellowships i was saying these things like i was yelling them and people were like well you know you know we kind of have to like you know really think about our funders you know and <laughs> blah, blah 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 and i'm just like wait hold on like you guys don't see this and and i was kind of i thought i was crazy you know and then now those same those same people 
are the ones that are like, hey, can we bring someone to like do this thing for the land acknowledgement or the indigenous peoples? Or how can we incorporate more indigenous photographers? And it's like, well, like a few years ago, you were not saying that. And then 2020 happened and everybody felt really guilty about their racism. And then it's like, well, now we have to. But people have been doing this for a long time. And I think it's really important to acknowledge that, that this is not a new idea that our peers have been that have been working on the field for for decades have been talking about this but nobody ever listened to them you know and at the same time it's not about like shaming or it's not about like oh you know if you're white or if you're like a male you're like you know you're bad for this thing it's like no it's not even about that is that the balance has been so to one side that we haven't even gotten the chance to to give that other perspective through vicious storytelling and to reform the way that we think about, like, for example, where the images end up or how the images are used. Like, I remember in 2020, there was this whole debate between, like, older photographers and younger photographers about, like, blurring people's faces from, like, protests, right? They were like, that's so unethical, that's, you know, blah, 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 blah. And then some were like, no, but, like, I'm being mindful because, you know, the federal government is coming after people and, I care about people. So like, you know, and I feel like strongly about this protest. And like, there was this whole conversation where you can see the clashes of generations, but then also the clashes of levels of racism, like that, that, that we still don't think that like, you know, if we put a, a black body or a brown body in front of the lens, that that black body and brown body is going to have, and almost also like LGBTQ plus and, and other different groups are going to have a much bigger consequence for being in that image than if like, how many times have you seen like a world press photo, a war winning image where a white person is suffering? Like not that many times. I mean, maybe, I don't know, maybe like once or twice I've seen, but it's usually like a Brown father or a Brown mother carrying their child after being bombed, like in this flames in the background. And it's like, you know, like we the whole system is made for us to feed into the machine of colonialism. Um, and that problem has existed for a long time as well with crime photography, right? It was always the perp walk of the young black man being led out of a building, being led to a car. But there was this problem in journalism, of course, has been uh, going on for a long time. The You just said something about the um, how often do we see the white person? And, and we're seeing that in Ukraine right now, the pictures coming out of Ukraine. And there is this you know, rightfully so, a lot of concern and 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 uh, um, compassion and and feeling for the suffering of the people of Ukraine. But where were the pictures of Yemen? So on the other side of that, there's a a real focus on war and conflict when it is close to Europe, when it is close to uh, or involving the United States. But when it's outside of that, we see less of a sustained interest right in western media oh i mean absolutely i don't know if um you saw some of the clips that were going around especially those first few weeks of the of the coverage in ukraine where reporters are saying things like this (laughs) isn't supposed to happen here that's right or this is in afghanistan and so it's like we divide the world into places where this is supposed to happen and where it's not supposed to happen and when we have this like way of, of seeing it and, and 
it became clear that a lot of reporters, a lot of media makers, a lot of people who are in charge of conveying very important information have this thought that, oh, no, it's not supposed to happen, not here. So that already kind of tells you that who are we comfortable seeing suffer in media and visuals and, and who are we not comfortable seeing suffer? And when we see it happen, we see these images coming from certain parts of the world, we just throw up our hands and we'll go, oh, well, what can you do? That's what happens there. And when it happens in a different place, then it's all of a sudden like, whoa, 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 not that spot. Like, <laughs> we right. need to actually do something about this one. Right. You know, the, the, we are, I think we're living in a time where, it, like, if you see a, a picture of, of, you know, migrant children, suffering at the border and then you see you know ukrainian children suffering in ukraine like they're still children right like like you start you start understanding this this is their human beings you know when i started seeing a lot of images coming from ukraine and this is a great example in the conversation that we're having is like one i'm not from there like i saw so many people from the united states going there chasing that image you know and chasing that story like yo you know all props to you you want to go do that but then I kept wondering because a lot of those images that I kept seeing from American journalists were like the, you know, the, the iconic, like, you know, destroy, you know, destroy building, you know, people suffering image. And then I kept going back to this thing of like, it's so interesting that we are uh, in a place and in a time where we reward war photography, but we hardly ever reward peace photography, right? Like, is there any Ukrainian photographers that were working on a project that was trying to make sure that like we saw how maybe there was going to be a war and maybe, you know, like we're not proactive about it. We're like super reactive about it and, and, and about like a storytelling. And then as soon, as soon as like the tragedy happens, everyone's up in arms to like want to go photograph it without really understanding their place in the story. And I think that that, that comes back to the insider outsider thing where it's totally okay if you're not from that community to go in there and, and photograph. Like I've been in that situation myself where like, I'm not from a certain tribe and I go and get invited or I ask to be invited to come and photograph. And there's like a protocol, right? It's like, okay, here, things are gonna be done differently than with my community. And that's totally okay. But I think that that is the biggest challenge for most photojournalists and business storytellers is that the protocols are not followed. And then also there's an extraction element to it that, you know, like who gets the award for telling a story about pain about indigenous peoples? Like would an indigenous photographer go and want to photograph their own pain or would they want to photograph like their joy? I would say their joy more than their pain, right? But we automatically reward the pain. And just like with the border and just like with Ukraine, like we are still rewarding pain when it comes to who tells the story. The more painful it is, the more we want to, you know, have the the image that changes the story, right? The image that changes the history of, or the, the, the path of history, like, you know, the Vietnam War, you know, little girl walking, you know, naked, you know, after suffering, like that, we're still like rewarding that. And I think that, that the future of photography is gonna be collaboration and it's gonna be intention. And it has to be some form of co-creation. It, 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 can't, it can't just be us, thinking that we know it all we, because we really don't. You know, you you and uh, Mabel actually have real direct experience with just what you're saying, this idea of co-creation 
And in particular, Josue, you, I think you actually were talking about the work in Standing Strong for a second there, which is your book documenting the Sioux people's resistance to the Dakota Access Pipeline. Is that right? Yeah. And I think one of the things you said about that work, and I think it also relates to your work, Mabel, in, in San Francisco, is the lack of showing the lived experience, um, this kind of whole experience, not just the tropes of suffering, the trope of protest, but the whole lived experience in the middle of what are clearly protests as well. And, you know, this idea of co-creating the work, I think that's a, a beautiful way to put it, because you were invited to photograph there, and you also took the time to share in experiences while you were there. Share in experiences that didn't involve photographing as a way of, of showing respect and as a way of lear- trying to learn more about a community that even though you are you are also an indigenous person, you are not part of that community. And then, Mabel, I'm thinking about the work you did for Catchlight uh, in San Francisco um, as part, uh, or actually maybe it wasn't, you can, you can tell me, but it's the work you have up now in San Francisco on the, from the COVID command center, you were an artist in residence at the COVID command center. The, the, yes. Thanks for like the, making the space for the clarification. Um, yes. cause there's some like overlaps there, but okay. I, was, I, was in, <laughs> I was an artist in residence for the SF, uh, arts commission. And they gave me access to what was the city's um, COVID command center of operations. And so through that, I was able to kind of gain access to any area of, of aid of the city that I, I wanted to focus on. And again, like in, in journalism school, I've been told, you know, don't document your friends. That's too easy. That's too close. You got to step outside of your comfort zone. And so while I was sort of thinking of what to focus on, my, I don't know what to call her, my, my advisor, my manager at the SF Arts Commission, Meg Schiffler, she was the one that actually suggested to me, like, why don't you document your neighbors? Like, look at everything that's happening hmm. in your neighborhood. And my neighborhood in San Francisco, the Mission District, was one of the hardest hit by COVID. And it's also, you know, where most of the, of the Latinx folks uh, in San Francisco live. Uh, a lot of immigrants, a lot of folks that couldn't work from home. So it was very hard hit. And a lot of my friends and neighbors were the ones who were either affected or the ones that were, uh, you know, stepping up to volunteer and help each other out. And I had to kind of overcome that programming that I received for so long. Uh, uh, again, to go back to this objectivity, what's it called? It's not really a reality to me, this objectivity idea. And I, I, it was just so funny that I just hadn't contemplated it. And then when I shifted my focus to like, okay, let, let's do it that way. And it became more personal and it became easier uh, because I did know a lot of people already working at testing sites at vaccination, vaccination sites, uh, food distribution sites in this neighborhood that when I would kind of pop in, somebody would know me, somebody would know who I am from seeing me in the neighborhood so many years. Uh, and so that really, really facilitated um, the process. And um, anyway, yeah, sorry, I went on a tangent there. But No, no, th- <laughs> no, that was good. That was a good clarification. And, and also, what I wanted to say about both bodies of work, Standing Strong and Care in the Time of COVID is, it isn't just about the crisis. It's also about the to, to quote you, Josue, a little bit, uh, the, the joy 
in the compassion of being there for each other. And that is, I think, the difference, right? The difference of of spending some time or knowing a community and getting to know a community and showing a, a larger picture of what's actually happening. Yeah, no, I think that that's, that's it's a circular you know, storytelling where you're, you know, multidimensional storytelling. And I even think, you know, and, and this is something that is sometimes um, seen as like radical thinking, which I don't think is radical at all, but I think almost like updating the, these titles or this like, you know, assigned titles that we have for like a photojournalist or even visual storytelling at that point, you know, you're like, well, what am I really? Like I came to that, to that question myself, um, very early on after standing, standing strong uh, and being there for seven months, it was, um, you know, being close and being in, in the community and participating gives you a perspective that, you know, you can no longer avoid, you can no longer like, you know, look and say, you know, I'm totally not, I'm detached from this story. You know, like you are, you are in the story, you, you know, this, you know, getting tear gas, just like everybody else, and then being targeted by police or by like, you know, federal agencies, like just like everybody else, just because you you are there and, and you're telling a story that other people are not telling. Like that is, yeah, you become part of that story, you know. And um, at the same time, I do want to I do want to clarify, I think that there's a lot of confusion from folks, especially folks that are in the industry that, you know, are like, well, you know, you need to have the outsider and the, and the insider, you know, and and all the time and it's like yeah but the problem is we haven't had the insider ever you know and and also like if you know for example like if somebody from the i don't know like a san francisco newspaper hits me up and they're like hey Josue, we really want you to come in and and do this story about the mission and you know x y and c like what i think every storyteller should ask themselves especially those that are from like you know a dominant culture let's call it that should question right like oh is this really like is there any photographers there from that community that could probably tell the story and that's when we have to look at you know folks like Mavel and like and her peers and be like oh yeah like why do I need to fly from Portland to <laughs> you know to to the mission and to the tenderloin when I have nothing to do with that like I it's and, and I think most photographers and photojournalists and visual storytellers especially from like the dominant culture, don't understand the concept just yet. You know, I think a lot of people are very jaded and, 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 and in the photojournalism and journalism, especially like folks are super jaded about, you know, wanting to break the story or getting the iconic image that wins the world press photo, photo of the year. Like, like people are in that mindset constantly that they don't care. They're like, yeah, like, you know, I'm going to go in regardless of, the fact that there's people already there and that happened at standing rock like people were flying from all over the world to come there for a weekend oh. and it was the same images like the tipis the person suffering over there like super romanticized ideas of what that was and then they went and like went back and like won their war you know what i'm saying and like that's that's how and i think that the whole system is made for people to push each other like that without giving space to the folks that are like close to that community and then also that are that are living that experience i think that that's that that's a point it's like you do, you won't get the same story if you have someone from the inside than the outside and we haven't even tapped into the insider yet you know at all all right everybody's trying to recreate the dorothea lang migrant mother photo <laughs> yeah it makes me think about like what is the future of like what is it going to look like in 25 years like we have tiktok we have instagram stories we have all these different new ways of telling a story that kind of 
include the individual so much that we might even get lost in there, right? Yeah. Like, like, yeah. <laughs> like, what is the future of this whole thing? And now we're gonna like listen to the folks that have been talking on this for decades, you know? Right, right. And in this time of course correction, which really is is just begun. Yeah, what comes out the other side of that? Is there pushback, and do we lose ground, or you know, do you gain ground? That, that that's always the question. What do you think, Mabel? Do we do we? You've been doing you've been doing this for way longer than I have, so I want to kind of hear your perspective. Like, did you ever lose hope when you were talking about these things? <laughs> Sometimes I did. Um, you know, we're talking about this era where it's becoming more acceptable for for documenters to have an opinion and to be open about their perspective and their experience. And, um, and it's funny because it's something that ethnic media has been doing for like over a hundred years, you know, and sometimes it's been like our involvement in the story. And, and like you're saying, Jose, earlier, like sometimes you do become part of the story. And again, we kept, we were told the rules, like, you know, journalism is like time travel, you know, like don't move anything, don't alter the course of things, but just you being there alters, you know, just the documentarian standing there can alter the course of an event. And so to say that we're not going to participate, it's, it's a little bit of an illusion. And a lot of times when you as a journalist become involved, you, you're, you're called things like an activist newspaper, where I worked at El Decolote newspaper in San Francisco, a bilingual newspaper. You know, we would call an activist paper uh, as a way to disparage us, you know, and, and now, now that activism and, and wokeness is cool, <laughs> everyone's moving towards this model of collaboration and participation that, you know, it, it's, it's always good to see it when you've been beating a drum for so long and people finally start listening. I, I, it is, it is hopeful. Being a person who works in this interest, industry is extremely hard. And as people will, will see, I think by the time that this episode airs, Catchlight will have released this um, state of the industry report. Yes. But just from the little bits, bits and pieces, I mean, it's bleak. It's bleak to, to try to be a person making a living as a documentarian, it's, it's very hard, but the way that it's being framed and being understood and the way that especially the new generation is thinking of different ways, like how do we involve the people that are, that were documented? How do we give them agency to feel that they were represented fairly? And people are coming up with all kinds of ways and methods. And, you know, as we're starting the, the California desk at Catchlight and I'm seeing all these applications from different fellows come in and seeing how, you know, this, this younger generation's thinking about it and how they approach their projects. It's, it's really exciting to see. And, you know, like you say, Jose, in 2025 years, I have no idea what it's going to look like. Um, but I think that overall, we are moving towards giving more agency to the people being documented. I even read one application where a photographer specifically said, I don't like using the word subject when referring to the people that I'm documenting. And I'm, and I'm so used to saying subject. We, you know, makes, if we've been in the business yeah. while you are very, <laughs> there are words, there are just words that we use all the time. And, and that is changing too. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the words matter, you know, what we call things matter uh, because subject does have this connotation of like this power dynamic that's very real that we need to push up against. And, and honestly, like in most situations as a documentarian, 
there is a power dynamic, no matter what you tell yourself or where you came from as a documentarian, you're holding a camera and that gives you certain power over the people that you're pointing that camera to. And so wherever you come from, whoever you are, you just need to be very, uh, just very mindful of of those consequences, right? So um, not just think about that big award or that big photo that you're going to produce. I mean, this sounds really like simple and logical, but a lot of journalists don't always go back to the communities that they got their awards from don't always check up on them you know they collect their awards and they collect their whatever their fame and their career status and they never look back and they don't ask how were you affected how was your community affected by these photos um if i portrayed your suffering and now this image of you in the worst moment of your life is out there forever does affecting a a single person's life always justify the information that other people get? I mean, I'm getting really philosophical here. (laughs) (laughs) No, but that idea of exploitation, right? You know, sometimes you hear conflict photographers, photojournalists say, you know, I'm showing this suffering because it's a message that needs to get out there. um, So people are more aware of these things. And so, there has to be some kind of balance, right, between showing the actual tragedy and adding tragedy to someone's life, right? Yeah, and then also acknowledging like savior complexes, you know. What I mean, like, <laughs> like when somebody says like, "Well, I need to show this so that so that this thing changes," and understanding that like sometimes people want to do that because they really want to make themselves feel good or because they're guilty, because they're like, "I'm really guilty for bringing from a dominant culture that has, for example, in this case, like." you know, treated indigenous peoples this way. Now I'm going to be the savior of that culture. And it's, just, it's the same thing with like, I mean, just, you know, I'm being very transparent here, but like same thing with religion, right? <laughs> like you're constantly, you know, the missionaries wanted to go and do their missions. There's photographers out there that are still being missionaries that they just don't even acknowledge or they don't really comprehend that they're going into community because they want to save them from something that is like, well, maybe if you just like step back, and like let people from that community tell their own story and people that already have a voice. A lot of people talk about like, well, I'm going to give this community a voice. It's like, you don't, they already have their own voice. It's just like, you're trying to recreate that voice into your lens, right? Into your own voice and combine it and attach yourself to that community so that you can say like, look, like I'm doing, I'm an outsider and I'm doing this work, but like, look how much the community loves me. Like that's all. I noticed that so many times with photographers where it's like, they have this sense of like attaching themselves to a community so that they can feel and being accepted by, you know, oh, you're one of the, you know, you're one of the good ones or, you know, like (laughs) one of the good ones that don't, don't extract. And it's like, yeah, but, but have we ever thought about like, you know, stepping away and, 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 and creating the resources for those folks to tell their own story. And I think that that is a feature is, is hoping that a lot of these foundations and a lot of these like people that are actually shaping the system and that are creating the system um, that have created it for a long time, like Magnum Photos, Groper's Photo, like all these different ideas that are pretty much antiquated at this point. You know what I'm saying? Like you're not, we're not, they don't fit in into this, into this realm anymore. But National um, Geographic went through a big change. And even then you're still seeing them like assigning like, Caucasian photographers to indigenous stories. <laughs> it just it just changes a tiny bit. You know, it's like, oh, like we're not gonna send the white male, we're gonna send the white female, you know? <laughs> but it's still the same thing. It's, it's, it's still like not making those decisions where it's like, 
what we it's like oh well, national geographic for example is like well what we think is good photography or what we think is good storytelling and that's what we're going to send It's the same thing when you ask like a ceo well, why don't you have like more people of color in your executive team it's like well because i can only find this when we started indigenous photograph that was a that was the thing. It's like, well, we don't know any indigenous photographers, so how are we going to assign them to a National Geographic story? And it's like, well, here they are now. And, this, <laughs> That's and, right. it, and even still, they're still there and they're still not assigning them. <laughs> so, um, you know, it's, just, it's like the same. It's almost like we're going against this wall. And, on, and I, honestly, like the whole thing about language and the whole thing about like taking, you know, shooting, capturing, even when you think of word like slave and master on like a flash, like, like, yeah, are we like blind? Uh, it's, like we're pretty, like it's pretty surprising and... to see a new product come out that still uses those terms on the product itself. And, and then when you bring it up to like older photographers, like I, I know I've been mentored by older photographers, mm-hmm. some magnet photographers. And I was like, yeah, like that sounds kind of weird. And, <laughs> and they're like, well, you know, this is the way that things are. And it's like, why are you guys trying to change it so much? It's like, well, because it's kind of harmful, you know? And like, and like when you're saying you're going to go shoot someone, like you're already saying what you're going to do. Like you're going to say you're going to go like this. You're going to go towards them instead of like co-creating and almost like, you know, a lot of photographers think that is their right. It's like, no, but it's my right. I stand in a rug. They're like, it's my right to document this and, and, you know, like photograph children, even if they're in a public space, because they're in a public space, like it's not illegally, I'm not blah, well, blah. There's blah. the difference like, between legal and ethical. Yes. But there's always this sense of entitlement and then also this sense of saviorism, I think, in, when it comes to like where we are in, in, in storytelling. So I really like that you touch Josue on that saying that is very common in journalism, like giving voice to the voiceless. Because I was just thinking about that and then you brought it up. And it's, again, it's just another phrase that we throw around to make ourselves feel better. And it's like, why do you, like, it's, it's and I, I totally agree with you, Josue. It's not that people don't have a voice, it's that we just refuse to listen to them. They've always had a voice. Everyone has a voice um, that deserves to be heard. But it's like, are we pointing the mic at them? I mean, so many times when we're talking about whatever issues in the news, we listen to experts and politicians. And so very rarely do we <laughs> like actually listen to the people being affected by these things. And, you know, I could make I could mention a million examples of stories going on right now where that's the case. But yeah, even the language that we have about things is so about taking and about extracting and You know, a lot of these things that we're talking about, we're making examples of people going from like a Western country to, you know, somewhere, some other parts of the world. But it really happens in like a much smaller scale. There's a neighborhood in San Francisco called the Tenderloin. And for those who aren't uh, familiar with it, it's a neighborhood that tends to be associated with crime, with drug use. If you Google, if you do Google search for the Tenderloin, you will see exactly what I'm talking about. And it's really easy to have that perspective. That's the stereotypical perspective, but there's so much more to the tenderloin. It's it's one of the places in the city, for example, with the highest uh, population of children. And that's kind of an, uh, some unexpected fact that not a lot of people realize. But anyway, the, the San Francisco Chronicle sent a reporter and they made such a big deal about it. I think it was like two weeks or six weeks, however long. And they're like, super publicized like we sent a reporter for a few weeks to the tenderloin and look at all the pictures of people with needles sticking out of their arm and people passed out in the street and pictures that like 
honestly, anybody with a camera could have gotten. Like that's, it takes the least amount of effort to take those photos of, of people who don't have the option of privacy and shelter and take photos of them at the, at their worst time. And, you know, I'm pretty sure this re- reporter or this photographer is from the Bay area at the very least, or lives in San Francisco. So in that sense, she's not an outsider and, and as, as far as community or, or geographically speaking, but I don't know, like as a, as a white person with a certain amount of privilege to go and document and collect your awards. And there is photographers from the Tenderloin covering the Tenderloin. One of them is a, happens to be a Catchlight fellow, Felix Uribe, who's doing an amazing work of documenting his neighborhood and documenting many facets of it, more than just what the Chronicle focused on, that actually get into the reasons why people end up in the situations that the Chronicle put on the front page. And so this isn't just something that happens on a global scale. This also happens like very much locally. And, and San Francisco is seen like this, this big city, but it's actually a very small place and everybody knows each other. And it, it happens on a smaller scale as well. And so to me, it was very surprising to see all this resources and publicity going to this project of someone kind of parachuting in this neighborhood that they're not really have any empathy for, honestly. And I didn't see the empathy and the photos and I didn't see anything new and I didn't learn anything new about the Tenderloin or its people. So, you know, when we think of like parachuting and extracting and and the colonial aspects of photojournalism, it's not just something that happens like miles and (laughs) thousands of miles away. It's, it's, it's happening right here. It's happening just a few blocks away. So (laughs) um, it's, it's in cities. You really, right. Right. For you, San Francisco and, and uh, Josue was uh, in uh, North and South Dakota, right? And, oh, go ahead. Sorry, Josue. Can I add something to that? Yeah, because I think that like, when you talk about that that story with the with the Chronicle, I, I remember seeing this story and I, you know, I have friends in the Bay Area that, that were kind of like, I can't believe they were actually published those images and somebody would do that, right? And then I kept thinking, and it's just the same, it's the same thing with most places. I mean, there's maybe a few newspapers and organizations that are like actively thinking about how they assign photographers. But if we, if we, if we have editors, photo editors, we have like, you know, upper management in like these big organizations that are not thinking or they're not making those decisions because those are the people like that are like really enabling a photographer that has a savior complex to go and like do a whole project. Like they reward that. They literally reward and create this system of, you know, if you go out there and, you know, and, and, and it's, it's really weird because it's like, this happens in a lot of places where like, it's rewarding people that are willing to take the risk and that like, are seen as like, you're the outsider that's doing the good job. There's doing the, the, you know, the good, you're one of the, again, one of those good outsiders. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and then that person feeling like entitled to that and, and not ever thinking, well, am I really like doing a good job here? Am I really like, allowing for the story to be told from the perspective of the people. And then, and then you very quickly will realize that you're not like, if I, if somebody went to tell me, I want you to come and do this story about, I don't know, like the experience of women in X, Y, and C. Like, I just know that from the, from the beginning, I just don't have that experience. And that doesn't mean that I shouldn't document it. You know, that means that I should think about that and then maybe refer to people that are working on that, on that matter that have way more expertise than I do. And just being like, yeah, here, like, I know I can do a good job. I know you can do probably a way better job than me. And, and most photographers and most editors, 
don't have that, that understanding and self-awareness. Yeah, because to be honest, it's all about gatekeeping and having, yeah, having the keys to, to the gate and being like rewarding the photographers that are constantly extracting, even if they think they're helping. Yeah, you're helping, but you're helping yourself and, and, the, and the magazine and the people and also the larger paradigm of, of having a lot of outsiders photographing is still being reinforced. You're still reinforcing that paradigm, even though you think you're helping. Absolutely. Mabel, are you now at the, are you the visual desk editor at the new California uh, location? Yeah, just uh, started in January. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. So it's a brand new project. It's it's kind of an experiment, you know. Uh, we're yeah. trying to find new models to make uh, visual journalism sustainable. And uh, and my role is going to be to support the actual fellows, the, the people that are out there taking photos uh, and, you know, mentoring them, supporting them and making sure that uh, that they have a successful fellowship and that we have sort of a, a triangle, right? We want the fellow to have a good fellowship and to help their career and to support their stories and documentation projects that they want to do. Second is the newsrooms. A lot of you know, we're working with really kind of local small newsrooms, which a lot of them are strapped for resources. So we're going to give them that support of, uh, of having a full-time visual uh, documentarian um, accessible to them. And then, and then the third is the community, like the communities that are surrounding those newsrooms should have a benefit from this as well. And so one thing that is a little bit different about these fellowships, it makes them different from like a regular staff photojournalist or photo-documentarian job is that they're expected to come up with a community engagement project to actually have a conversation with the communities that they're going to be covering and actually listen to what those communities want and, and, you know, try to create a system of accountability. Are we actually listening to you? Are we actually covering the stories that you care about? And are we portraying you and your neighbors in a fair way? So, you know, this is a very new thing that, I mean, Catchlight has have, has done different kinds of fellowships and different capacities, which, you know, Josue was, a, was one uh, global fellow a few years ago. And this, this is like a very new kind of fellowship. I think this is the first time that um, they're going to be like a full-time job, mm. full-time visual job, which is, which is really, really hard to come by. So yeah, we're, we're really excited. The fellows are going to be starting in June. Uh, we're still uh, in the process of selecting the last few. You know, it's 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 like a little scary because uh, as a lot of people saying, Catchlight, we're building the plane as, as, as we're learning to fly it at the same time. But at the same time, it's like a there's like a lot of possibility because we're not constricted by we have to do things this way. We have to approach photojournalism the same way that it's been approached all these decades. It's like, no, this is an opportunity to create something new. And Catchlight is really intentional about the intersection of, of photography, social change, and art. And so we're also sometimes kind of not fully using terms like photojournalism because it sort of elicits a lot of the concepts and distractive concepts that we're talking about. And so now people are hearing all these different terms, right? Visual journalist, visual storyteller, lens-based artists, because I think it's it's a it's a, it's a time of soul searching. And we're trying to figure out what are we really, what should this be called? How should we think about it? And I think that, you know, we have editors and we have 
you know, board members and all this stuff. But I'm really excited to hear, like, I guess the people at the, you know, towards the bottom of, of, of this structure is the journalists themselves that are actually going out there. So I'm really excited about them coming up as young people who maybe have not been reinforced these concepts as much as we have. They don't have as much to unlearn, I feel like, as some of us who've been doing this longer. They're like, they're the world of possibilities. So I'm really excited to see what's going to happen. You know, I, I, I've been meaning to ask you, and I think you actually just answered it. Do you separate photojournalism and documentary work? What is the the balance and the line between journalism and activism and community engagement? And it, it sounds like to me that, and and Josue, you too as well, from from looking at the work that that there isn't there aren't hard lines, right? That that the the story kind of dictates your involvement in some ways as well, and the approach you might take uh, to that story, and that in order to to provide a sense of real humanity in the story, you know, the old model of the detached, objective photojournalist uh, no longer works and maybe never worked. I think that when you are saying you're a photojournalist, you're saying that you're journaling with images. There's no, like, it's like I can journal all day long, but does that mean that my writing or my, that whatever I'm journaling is going to have an effect on the course of humanity? And I think that, there's a lot of different people. There's a different generations that have come onto this earth to be like, I'm not here just to journal some shit, you know, sorry, sorry. to journal some stuff. You it's know, okay. Like, we, ha- we have an adult rating on our podcast. Okay. Great. So like, you know, like I'm not, I'm not here just to observe and, and be like a witness to the tragedies and then go back to my, you know, to my apartment in New York and just like go have my cocktails and like talk about how hurt I am because I went to war. Like that's cool. Like that's, that work for a long time for people, but then these are these generations I think that are coming up where they're like, well, why am I here? And and you know, if I even even when you look at it on the commercial side of things, like I I worked in many commercial projects where, especially after 2020, it's like, well, we know we really want to like make sure that people are you know photographing and, and who's photographing them, and then also that there's like a higher purpose for the, them buying this thing, right? So like people are tapping into that now because it requires for the consumer. The consumer doesn't just want to consume anything and just be like, okay, I just polluted the earth. Like when it comes to photojournalism, when it comes to vicious storytelling and documentary work and all these different things, who is consuming this? Like who is the consumer? And then you start realizing that the consumer, which sounds super wrong word, but it really is like that. Like the older folks are pissing out. You know what I'm saying? And like, they're like, I don't know if I like this whole like, pronoun stuff like <laughs> what do you mean you need pronouns like i'm just a male or female right like there's a bunch of stuff like, like almost like that paradigm being like why are we trying to change photojournalism and it's like because you know that that work that operating system worked 20 30 40 years ago and that operating system with this new mac that we have you know this new computer it just does not work it's kind of slow and it's slowing things down so i think that that journaling with images it's literally part of the past. It's like, well, what are you going to do? Like when you're there and you see someone getting hurt, are you just going to like document it and hope that somebody will do something about it? Or are you going to like actually step in and, and, you know, the citizen journalism idea is like, it's like, yeah, like we saw that with George Floyd. Like if it wouldn't be for that video, we wouldn't necessarily be seeing a lot of the things. This is because when we realize that we are, 
natural documentarians that we as human beings were meant to tell a story, period. It just happens that some of them know how to do the shutter speed better than others <laughs> and the aperture better than others. And that's it. Like now I think with your phone that you document can go viral. And then there's people that go to like pay a bunch of money in school to like get a degree that says that they're professional photographers, but they're struggling to you know, get a five likes on their page or something like that. You feel, see what I'm saying? So like mm-hmm. the, the future is, is going to be so different and it's going to require for humanity to be collaborators with each other. Therefore that's going to fall into storytelling. I think. I laughed a lot. Well, I was muted, but I was <laughs> laughing a lot of what you're saying because, you know, the, I, I I think about this resistance, right? Why do we change this? Why do we change that? And I think about people that that are threatened by like the ubiquitousness of the iPhone cameras, and they're like, oh well, you know, it's not fair, or ah, anybody can take a good photo. Like, why does that bother you? <laughs> why does it bother you that anyone can take a good photo with a good ex? exposure. I I think to me that removes a barrier. And then we get to the real core of it, which is storytelling, right? Like what good is it for you to always have the right aperture and the right shutter speed? If there's nothing to what you're saying, you're not bringing anything to the conversation. And it's really interesting. This, this new generation may not, everybody may not know, you know, what shutter speed is, but they know what's compelling. They know what makes a good moment. They know what's going to get a person's attention. They know what's going to have an emotional impact. So when we remove those technical elements, those technical barriers, like we're going to have this generation of of natural storytellers because people have this accessible now. And, um, People are used to being documented now, you know, any, any, you can't do anything goofy at a party without three people pulling out an iPhone. I stopped doing goofy stuff in front of people a long time ago. And that goes back to that, like altering a situation, right? Just by pulling out your phone, someone might stop doing what they're doing because you start documenting it. But this generation is very used to it. It's very used to being on both sides of it. It's very used to being documented and also turning that around. And I'm, I'm hoping that this will create a more equal system, but it's also telling for me when people are resistant to change and when we have to examine our own privileges. It's like, why is this making me uncomfortable? Is this making it a little more different for me? Is this making me have to compete with people that I didn't think I would have to compete before who didn't, you know, who don't have an expensive camera? Now they get to compete with me. <laughs> so I, I love the idea of, of the iPhone camera as a, well, even though just having an iPhone is a privilege in itself, but it does it does bring a lot more people into the possibility. It has a of, democratizing of, effect. Yeah, yes, exactly. Yes, yes. Yeah, and then and then you think about like you know like the algorithms that dictate what is popular and what is not popular, and then this just happens to be corporations at this point, right? Like TikTok, Google, Facebook, you know, or Meta, whatever it's called now. Now these are the these are the these are the algorithms that are dictating what one needs to be pay attention to. And then you think about like, well, what happened before that? Like where was visual storytelling, photojournalism, all these things? Those were the algorithms were set by these organizations that were mostly westernized kind of organizations, right? So I think that the future too is like 
tapping into, you know, I'm sure by the time I'm like 50, like we're going to, I mean, there already are photographers photographing in the metaverse. I already seen it. I know some photographers who are literally on assignment on the, in the metaverse right now. Huh. That's, that's to me, that's super interesting because I like to keep up with what is not even keep up. I like to understand things. Right. right. So, uh, but I think that like, imagine in the future, like in like 10, 15, 20 years where I hope not. And my hope is that doesn't happen, but it looks like it's going towards that where people are constantly in a metaverse for whatever reason, maybe another pandemic, maybe people just like to be in the metaverse. And then all of a sudden you have to deal with the same exact things that are you dealing with here, right? But like consent, why are you photographing? Who are you photographing this for? Who's going to benefit from this? And I think that those are the questions that like, if we talk about those now, because we didn't talk about them 40 years ago, then we can prevent and be proactive into having a paradigm that allows for a circular way of working as storytellers and not just for extraction. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To, um, to sort of wrap it up here, you know, this is, we're recording before the actual summit. <laughs> and Josue, you're a, you're a moderator of the panel at Mabel you are on. And how do you, um, do you see hope coming out of this? Is this uh, like, uh, I, I, Mabel, I actually do feel like you, when you've been talking about like, sort of the next generation coming up there, you see that as kind of hopeful. Do you see that as part of the, the talk? I do. I, I think we're, you know, there, there's going to be good news and bad news. Right? Well, <laughs> yes, the... I know the state of <laughs> when the report comes out. Yes, yeah, be some yeah, bad that might news be yet. the bad news. But I think <laughs> that when we hear about how people are approaching it and and how the models of representation are changing, who's behind the camera, who gets to tell the stories, sharing that gate, that uh, gatekeeping, <laughs> you know, sharing those uh, those seats uh, with with different communities and different perspectives. I think that the more perspectives that are represented, the better every time. So I think that people will come out of the the summit a little bit more savvy about what goes on behind behind the scenes, but also hopeful for not just as an industry, you know, we say the industry and I feel like that has an economical focus and I'm still not sure how that's going to change and and how people are actually going to be able to just make a living as visual journalists, because that's really nearly impossible right now. But I think that I wish there was an alternative word to industry, just the realm of visual journalism, the practice of it, uh, I think is going in a really good direction. And people are, you know, when you learn that things have not been working well for a very long time, that can be difficult to transition, especially if uh, if things were working out for you in the previous model, um, you might have an adjustment period. But but the advantage of being in this time is that we can make it whatever we want right now. We have the the, the power to decide now. And as representation is, is, you know, we still have a long ways to go, but it's starting to become more equitable. I don't know. I'm just really excited. I don't have any like grand truth to, to share because I think I, I hope that the takeaway is like just being open to to what the future might look like and, and listening and being open to perspective, different perspectives of, you know, breaking the box of how documentation has been done. It's a good time right now to experiment and, and to be new at this. It can be tough, but you're in a period of you just getting started in this. You're in a great you have a great advantage to to propose things. I think editors and publications have to become, just to survive, have to become more open to what, to different ideas. So this is the time to come up with with different ideas. Yeah, absolutely. that's great. Josue, did you have any sort of 
thoughts about this uh, in at right now upcoming, but possibly when you're listening to this past uh, panel? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's a, a you know a great first step, and I you know I I know that catch like it's it's they're trying to bring up these larger conversations and almost like tougher conversations to the table. So I'm happy about that. I think that, you know, with hope, I also, I'm, I'm very excited about, or energized, actually, I'm not, I don't get excited. I get energized about people actually taking action and people that might, you know, like a lot of times, you know, people say like, why do I have to worry about that? If that was my ancestors that they, I didn't do it. Like my ancestors did that. And it's like, yeah, but you have to like dismantle the system that your ancestors made so that you benefit from that. If you can dismantle it along with people and, and, and not get hurt and not get like threatened by, oh man, like things are going to change for me now. Like then I think that we can co-create a future together. I don't think that is like you exclusively only want the insider to tell the story all the time. Like, of course not. That that will be, that will one, you will only get exactly what we have right now, which is mostly the outsider telling the story, which still wouldn't be healthy. But I think that bringing a balance and dismantling things together is going to take our whole lifetime, I think, to see a change in, like I said, in humanity, therefore into this, like things like visual storytelling and like photojournalism and all these different things that we call, like it's going it, to, we are adapting constantly. So I think that if people activate themselves and start thinking ahead and they start doing things for future generations so that like my kids don't have to deal with like the amount of racism and, you know, and amounts of like biased storytelling that always portrays people of color and marginalized communities, so-called marginalized communities as like lesser than or poor, you know, like if we, if we can do that and work towards that, then we did our job here. Mm -hmm. Well, that's, that's a great uh, place to end with, what you both said uh and thank you so much for uh spending some time with me thank uh, you for having us oh no this was my pleasure <laughs> thank you i'm excited i'm energized to see my veil soon next yeah. week <laughs> yes that's right you can check out what happened at catchlight.io and uh mabel your website is mabelhimenez.com and will you be uh posting work from the care in the time of covid a show that I think is coming down at the end of April, near the end of April. Yeah, the the other two panelists that are going to be uh, joining me and and moderated by Josue are Felix Uribe and Jessica Prado, both uh, former Catchlight fellows who both have uh, work in uh, that show. Work yeah, in that show. Yeah. Yes. Yep. Uh, and then Josue, your uh, website is uh, Josue Rivas Photo Photo with an F dot com, and you can see images from your Standing Strong project there. Yes, which is also That's a correct. book. Congratulations on the book, by the way. Thank you, yeah. Uh, the book, which I just purchased at Photo Evidence, they still had copies. You can still get it there. Uh, That's amazing. Yes. And so, again, thank you both very much. And uh, bye, everyone. Thank you. Chat soon. Thanks for your pleasure. Real Photo Show with Michael Chauvin Dalton is a production of Real Photo Show, which you can listen to on all your favorite podcast platforms. Please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher, and be sure to subscribe on any one of those services or wherever you listen to podcasts.